so much. Uh, I was in L.A. last week. <clears throat> it's our monthly ministry to a group of kids all in the entertainment business. And uh, so Sunday morning, I got up and listened to Ryan uh, on my phone, and he did such a great job. I was so proud of him and very grateful for him and the ministry God's given him to our church. I also want to thank our pastor for entrusting me to uh, share his pulpit for this month. I don't take that lightly. Um, I, I, I've said to Sam, one of my, in what God's called me to do, one of the saddest aspects, I'm just gone a lot. I, I'm preaching somewhere. I said, if I'm not here on a Sunday, I'm either sick, but I'm not home watching cartoons. I just want you to know. And uh, it, it grieves me when I can't be here. And so to have this month with you uh, probably means a whole lot more to me than it does to you. And I know Sherry would say the same thing. So I'm very grateful to Sam for that. And also, we're going to take uh, some time today uh, to celebrate the 22-plus year ministry of Randy and Linda Moreland. Uh, Randy is retiring, which I laugh because there's no way he's going to do that for long uh, Randy is going to find a group of people who need uh, the arms and the feet and the hands of Jesus. I don't know what God has for them, but they're moving uh, closer to family, and we're going to miss them dearly. I've told him before, I said, if I had one word picture of you, it's a tree stump. I know he looked at me like, is that a good thing? And I said, yeah, it's a great thing. I said, when you take a tree stump and you pull it out of the ground, it leaves a hole. Randy Moreland's going to leave a big honking whole. He really is. And we're going to miss him. What If this church were on the New York Stock Exchange, it would affect our stock price at least for a while. And uh, he's such a dear brother. I love him so much. And folks, I will tell you this, because I've been doing this now for 45 years. There are not very many Randy Morelands. There just aren't. They're just not. It's okay. Yeah, we can do that. So to, after the service, he's going to be over in the connection area. I, I realize, I know who's playing at noon. I hope you set your DVR, but let's just say you didn't. Telling him thanks for 22 years of ministry is a lot more important than you being home for the kickoff, which you won't make anyway, okay? Cause, so I just wanted to let you know that. So hope you recorded it. But uh, anyway, he's just a dear friend, and we're going to have a chance, and you'll have a chance to say thank you to him and to... Uh, just tell them thank you. I know one thing he would appreciate this morning. They have not yet sold their house. And that's very important as you, <laughs> as you understand. I'm sure many of you in here can afford more than one mortgage. Most of us cannot. So just be praying that that house gets sold um, very, very soon. Uh, over the last few months, we have been exploring the series, What It Means to Love Our Neighbor. And as we come to the end of that series uh, this morning, I wanted to take a little bit different approach uh, to that because up to this point, we've been pretty much focused on others, which we as a church should. The church should be about those who are not here yet. This place is to equip us for the, the work and the worship outside these walls. But I wanted to take a little bit different look, and I wanted us to look at ourselves and to take an inventory of ourselves. I said at the beginning of this month that if we are going to be change agents in our neighborhood, our community, our country, our world, it begins with God 
changing our lives. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the third parable this morning in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Uh, it is a very, very familiar passage, and my, the only thing I'm really scared about this morning is that some of you are going to think that you know this story so well that it has nothing to do with you. And I hope that by the time you leave, and I believe if your heart is open, you will understand there's not one person that will walk out a door and say, that didn't relate to me. In some shape, form, or fashion, that is my prayer. So it is a story that has been referred to for generations as the story of the prodigal son, a young man who demands his inheritance, gets his inheritance, squanders the inheritance, begins to get a minimum wage job feeding pigs, then he, there's a famine in the land, and he begins to eat the food that he's feeding the pigs. So what I think is important before we kick off this morning, and I, th I think you'll understand why I've referred to it this way, Tim Keller makes a statement that he says, unfortunately, we have called that parable for generations the parable of the prodigal son. When he said the reality is the story should be called the parable of the prodigal God. Some of you might say, well, how in the world do you dare refer to God as a prodigal? Well, because we misunderstand what the word prodigal means. It doesn't mean wayward. It doesn't mean rebellious. The word prodigal means recklessly extravagant, having spent everything, which is what was paid for at Calvary to be able to redeem you and me. And so I, I think it's important that we understand that this is going to relate to us, I hope this morning, in ways that we perhaps did not know. Because calling it the prodigal son, it's dangerous because it lulls us into believing that if we're not living in blatant rebellion against God right now, that we're home free. That that, that story is about a rebellious boy who rebels against dad. Well, I'm not living in rebellion right now, so this story really doesn't apply to me whatsoever. And so as you're about to find out, nothing is further from the truth. So let's take a look at the text this morning in Luke chapter 15. Begins with these words, and a man has two sons. Automatically, we know we're going to have drama, right? The only thing that would have created more drama, and the man had three daughters. I know because I do. There are many years I suffered from estrogen strangulation. I built a fire pit at the back of my yard as far from the inside of the house as possible. It's the only way I survived. So we know there's going to be drama. We just don't know how much drama. Oh, by the way, you know what causes sibling rivalry? Having more than one child. So just those of you who only have one child, maybe God's sparing you from something. So the Bible tells us that the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me this, the share of the estate that falls to me. This would have been a slap in the face of dad. You do not ask for dad the inheritance. It only comes after his death. And he said, give me the share that falls to me. And he divided his wealth among them. And not many days later, the younger man gathered all of his belongings 
went on a journey to a distant country, and he squandered his estate with loose living. When he had spent everything, there was a severe famine that occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. And he went and he hired himself out as one of the citizens of the country. And they sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly have eaten, filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving him anything. When he came to his senses, ladies and gentlemen, sin makes us lose our senses. I look at people sometimes and the things that they do, and I'm going, what is wrong with them? That's what sin does. You go nuts. You just go crazy. You lose your senses. He lost his senses. And he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread? And I'm dying here of hunger. I'm going to get up and go to the father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired hands. And he got up and he went to the father. And while he was a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him. And don't miss this, the father ran. In first century Middle East, men don't run. Children run, women run, teenagers run, men don't run. It is a perfect illustration of one who comes to the father in repentance and confession and the father running to him to embrace him into his arms. Incredible picture here that we, so for, we, we often just overlook. And he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to the slaves, quickly, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on him, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine that was dead has come again. He was lost and has been found and he began to celebrate. If you read this story, most of us are lulled into believing that this father had one good son and one bad son, one rebellious son, one compliant son, but as you're about to find out in this story, this father has two lost sons. Now, if I were to ask you to define lostness, could you? Now, we know what being physically lost is, and I think sometimes we understand what we think spiritual lostness is, but do we? Because these two brothers, as you're about to find out, were both lost, but they were lost for different reasons. You see, you can spot a mile away younger brother lostness, right? If you see someone living in open rebellion against God, that's not easy to detect. It's not hard to detect. But older brother lostness is much more subtle and is much more difficult to see than younger brother rebellion. Now, folks, it's important for you to understand the audience, because in this audience, there were two groups of people. I believe right in front of Jesus in some sort of a circle, semi-circle, were a group of men and women who were the misfits of the day. No one wanted anything to do with them. They were the tax collectors, may have been prostitutes, may have been just outcasts. 
No one, including the religious community, wanted anything to do with them whatsoever. They were the younger brothers. They, they were rebellious. They, they were not moral conformists. They did not follow the law. They did not pray. They fill in the blank. They were just the, the younger brothers. But standing behind the younger brothers were the older brothers, the scribes and the Pharisees who stood with their chests puffed out in their ceremonial robes and headgear and tassels with their arms crossed, glaring at Jesus, daring him to say something that they disagreed with. Those were the two groups of people that are listening to this story. And I think as you're going to see in a minute, that is very, very important to understand that. The moral conformists kept the law. They crossed the T's. They dotted their I's. Folks, let me tell you something. There was very little supernatural about first century Judaism. It just wasn't. Because the scribes and Pharisees took the Mosaic law and heaped one man-made law after another, and it was so oppressive to the people. So oppressive to the people. Nothing supernatural about this. In fact, the religious leaders, when they looked at you, they only wanted to know one thing. Do you keep the rules? You keep the rules. They were a lot more consumed and concerned about whether or not you kept the rules than whether or not you had a relationship with God. It was stifling. To them. Well, what's hard to believe is that we still see that in churches today. We still see it in churches today. What kind of a religious system do you think that that produces? When people are more consumed about whether or not the congregation following the rules and whether or not they have a relationship with God. And don't tell me those churches don't exist. I could stand up here right now. would never do this, but I could give you one, two, three, four, five. In other words, churches that are more known for the things they hate than they are for the one they love. Yes, we stand against sin. Yes, there is sin in our generation that needs to be confronted. I understand that. But I don't, only, I don't want to be known as a, a church that just simply hates everybody and everything if they're different from us. And yet, that's what that system produced in first century. If you don't follow the rules and you're not like us, we want absolutely nothing to do with you. Nothing whatsoever. So I want you to see the older brother, beginning at verse 25. It said that the older son was in the field, and when he came and he approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring, hey, what's going on? And he said to them, well, your brother has come home. Your father's just killed the fatted calf, has received him back. Safe and sound. But I want you to look at these next words. And he became angry. What? What? He became angry? Yeah, became angry. 
And then the Bible says that the younger brother, don't miss this, don't miss this. It's fixing to come up in just a second. He was unwilling to go to the party. Unwilling. No way. I'm going to the party. And he went to his father and he said to his father, look. If you look at that that phrase in, in the New Testament, it basically is, look you. Look you. And look at this. This is unbelievable. I, I, I can't believe that, that he said this, but he did. He says, look you. For many years, I've been serving you. I've never neglected one of your commands. I've never uh, done that, and you've never given me a goat. And yet, you're celebrating your younger son's sin. This guy doesn't even admit that this brother of his is his brother. Look what he says in verse 30. But this son of yours... He doesn't even acknowledge that that's his little brother. Why was he so angry? Well, if if I just had to guess, and it's a total guess, but I'm telling you why I've come to this conclusion is because I know humanity, and I've seen this repeated hundreds of times. You want to understand what a family is all about? Just let the matriarch or patriarch die and start dividing the states. I can't tell you how many families I know that are absolutely destroyed and are still destroyed today because of money. Because dad died, mom died. I didn't get my share. What's well, not yours anyway? Everything you've got is his. But I think he must have said, well, okay, little brother, he squandered his inheritance on prostitutes, and so there's 50% for me. Is daddy now going to give me only half of the half? Folks, I guarantee there's a lot of human beings that think that way and would be just as angry about this scenario if it were to happen to us. You see, what's really sad, when you get to the end of this story, you know there's only one brother out of fellowship with the father? Guess who it is? I'll give you a hint. Not the younger brother. He's already repented. He's already confessed. He's already come home. The brother that is still out of fellowship with the father is the one that stayed home and kept all the rules. I said to you at the very beginning, there is more than one kind of lostness. Tim Keller said, don't miss this. It was not the older brother's blatant sin that put up a barrier between himself and his father, but rather it was his pride in his moral record. You understand my pride sent Jesus to the same cross as any man that sleeps with any prostitute? That my pride is no better than the immoral man who sleeps with whoever? It's still putting nails in our Savior's hands. And yet this older brother wants to talk about his record. Older brothers love to talk about their record because it makes them feel good. But you have to understand, it wasn't his wrongdoings that separated him from dad, but rather his self-righteousness. 
That's what got him in deep yogurt. Blatant sin, well, maybe not so much. Pride, oh, just as devastating as the other. Now, some would say, well, how can that be, Warren? Because the, the hearts of both of these brothers are closer than they appear. The point of the story is that both of these brothers resent their dad. The younger brother at the beginning, the older brother at the end, but at some point in time in this story, both brothers resented dad. They did. You know why? Because they were more interested in daddy's stuff than they were in daddy. You let that sink in for a minute. More consumed with daddy's stuff than they were dad. They both attempted to get what they wanted. And this is very interesting. One attempted to get it by throwing a temper tantrum. You've been to a mall or you've been in a store, you've seen a kid throw a temper tantrum. You can spot that a mile away, right? That's the younger brother. The older brother, look at this, see how subtle it is. He just didn't go to the party. He just didn't go to the party. Would you tell me that one's any better than the other? They both resented their dad. Because dad did not give them what they wanted or because they thought dad may not give them what they wanted. But I want you to understand is why I named this sermon. I gave it the name that I did. Do you understand that it's possible, folks, to do the right thing for the wrong reason? I'm going to repeat that. You understand it's possible to do the, the right thing for the wrong reason. Jim Elliott is one of my heroes. Jim was killed in his 20s. Jim was killed three months before I was born trying to take the gospel to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. We think Jim was hit in the neck with a poisonous dart, was the first to die. I say that because the other ones, the other guys with him died much more gruesome deaths than Jim's. Jim was married to a woman by the name of Elizabeth, who several years after Jim's death went back to that same village and pretty much led that entire village to faith in Jesus. Now, I don't know, if it, I, I don't know ladies, if, how easy that would be for you to do. But Elizabeth Elliot told a story once. It's an apocryphal story. It's not a biblical story, so I don't know that it's true, but it does make this point. She said one day that Jesus was with his disciples, and he said, hey, guys, we're going on a journey. Would you please pick up a stone for me? And so... Peter goes, okay, well, he didn't say how big of a stone, so I'm going to take and pick up this stone. And Jesus said, carry it. So he puts it in his pocket, and they start off. Four hours later, they build a fire, and they make lunch. He said, okay, boys, I want everyone to take their stone and hold it out just like this. And so Peter takes his stone, the first one probably to put it in the face of Jesus. And Jesus said, I am making your lunch the size of your stone. Which meant Peter would be finished really quickly, right? 
So they finish their meal, and Jesus said, okay, we're going a little bit further. Why don't you guys pick up another stone? You've heard the old saying, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you. I think this must be where it originated, not sure. So Peter said, okay, all right, I, I know this game. So he picks up a stone. And for four hours, carries this stone. And they get to the end of the day, it's dinner time. Jesus said, hold out the stone. Well, Peter had to take both hands to hold out the stone. He's thinking, T-bone steak, baked potato, great salad. Jesus said, does everyone have their stones out front? Yes, yes, yes. And they're, they're contemplating what they're about to eat. And Jesus said, I want you to take your stone, throw it in the lake. Oh, golly, Peter was so ticked off. Some of you would have been ticked off too. I probably would have been ticked off because I just knew I I knew the game. I, I just knew I'd figured him out. And Jesus obviously saw Peter's facial expressions and knew what his heart was all about. And so he looked at him. He said, Peter, why are you so angry? Why are you so ticked off? Did you carry that stone today for me? Or did you carry that stone today for you? How much of what we're carrying today is for him versus what are we carrying today because we get some benefit out of it or some blessing that we think we might receive? Both brothers wanted Santa Claus more than they wanted a dad. But do you understand in this text, don't miss this. If you want to jot this down, don't miss this. Do you realize that you can be alienated from father by either keeping the rules or breaking them? Did you hear me? You understand that you can be alienated from the Father either by keeping the rules or by breaking them. Tim Keller made this statement. He said, careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against the Father. You see, the primary focus of this story Not that group in the front. Not the ones that didn't think, not the ones that knew they didn't have it all together. It's the ones in the back that thought, we're pretty great. The younger brothers were not the focus. Did you know that if you are sick, chances are you will go to the doctor? and hopefully get well. But did you know if you don't know that you're sick, you won't get help, you will only die. Do you hear me? If you don't know you're sick, you don't think you've got an issue, you think things are great, you won't get help, you'll just die. That's why I think the words of Jesus to a blind man sort of make sense now when you realize that 
Jesus walks up to a blind man one day and says, hey, Bob, do you want to see? Does that not seem like the stupidest question you've ever heard for a blind man? You ever met a blind man or a blind woman didn't want to see? Does that make any sense to you whatsoever? Well, here's what Jesus knew. He knew the human heart. You understand that man has lived maybe all of his life, most of his life on an eight by 10 mat. He's gotten food stamps, government housing. His whole world is that little mat. He has very little responsibility. But you understand, if all of a sudden he can see, he's going to have to give up his government housing. He's going to have to give up his food stamps. He's going to have to get a job. His whole life is going to change. When you can see, you've got to take responsibility for your own life. Our country's filled today with men and women who refuse to see themselves as the problem. They want to continue to blame everyone for their dilemma except themselves. That's the country we live in today. My situation is always someone else's fault. Jesus is trying to go to the heart of the matter. Dude, do you really want to get well? Think about it. Think about it because your whole life is about to change. And you're about to have to start taking responsibility for your life. Things are going to change. But unfortunately... If we were really honest with ourselves, many of us in this room are very happy with the way we are. We're not that rebellious, brother. We're not spending money on prostitutes. We're not living in blatant sin. But you do understand you may be keeping the rules and be more out of fellowship with the Father than those that have and have repented and come home. We've got to allow God to expose those areas of our life that have to change if we are ever, by the grace of God, to be change agents in our communities. In 1937, 73% of Americans, North Americans, went to church. Today, It is less than 50%, but that 50% includes not only churches, but mosques and synagogues. I am so grateful. I am so unbelievably grateful. And I know that Sam would be the first, the staff would be the first to give all the credit to God that you and I are living in a church that is growing. But I am telling you, most churches are not. They are declining all across this country. And Keller makes one interesting point that I want to leave you with today, and here it is. Why are younger brothers not visiting our churches more? Or when they do visit, why do younger brothers often not seem to stay? And Keller says, well, there are many possibilities, but here's one, and this is what I want you to give some thought to. Is it possible that the reason that younger brothers are not coming to our churches today is because our churches are filled with older brothers. Let me tell you, a younger brother can smell an older brother a long way away. They see when they walk in that door, are you sizing me up? Are you judging me because you don't think I keep your rules? Are you really going to love me for who I am? Churches that are committed to that and committed to the word of God are the churches that are growing. And that's what I pray this church will continue to be. We don't lose sight of that. Does that make sense? 
Very, very important. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. What a great God that you are. Uh, This passage, I pray God will take hold of our hearts, that you would reveal to us if there is any older brother spirit that is within us, anything that says, I have a hard time loving people who are different from me. If we do, oh God, we will never reach our community. We've got to be willing to take people where they are and to point them to you. And I pray that we would do this not only for the advancement of your kingdom, but for the glory of your name. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Worship Online. If you're in our area, we want to invite you to come to physically connect to your local church. We would love to help you to live and love like Jesus alongside of others who are doing the same. If you're from outside of our area, can I challenge you to find a local church in your area that's going to preach the Bible and exalt Jesus? Smash the like button, subscribe, share with friends, and turn on notifications if you'd like to stay up to date with us. And thanks again for joining us.